Hello and welcome back to Worst Church Ever, the progressive Christian podcast that grew up down the block from Wayside School. We like our stories sideways and our biblical theology dot 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 subversive. In the last episode, we talked about Sarah, then called Sarai, and her treatment of Hagar in chapter 16 of Genesis as Sarai's way of reproducing her own trauma. Trafficked by her husband in the court of Pharaoh, Sarai now traffics her Egyptian slave in her husband Abram's tent. We said that it's hard to see the patriarch and matriarch as anything but villains in this story, and we ended with Hagar's exaltation of El Roy, the god who she saw when she was forced into the wilderness, and perhaps more importantly, the god who saw her. We pick up today with chapter 17, which again finds God, Yahweh, making a covenant with Abraham. And the last two episodes have been episodes where we've taken very familiar biblical stories from the scriptures, uh, from Genesis specifically, and looked at them in a light that might be new, or might be different, or might be upsetting, or however you want to think about it. But we talked about this idea of Sarah being trafficked by Abraham. And that's not an interpretation I was really ever thinking of before I read a piece by Karen Gonzalez. But because I read that piece and I started to think about what that meant, by the time I got to Sarai and Abram's treatment of Hagar in chapter 16, I was thinking in new and different terms. And so for me, it's clearly a reproduction of Sarai's own trauma. She's recasting and reenacting the same trauma that she experienced in the court of Pharaoh right there with her own Egyptian slave. Today, we're going to look in part at circumcision, the sign of the covenant, and we will question as to whether or not it's a violent act. And I think that's an interesting thing to think about, especially as we continue to look at the putative origins of these texts and traditions. So I'm going to pick up here in the biblical narrative with chapter 17 of Genesis, starting at verse 1. Now, Abram and Sarai are still called Abram and Sarai at this point, and Abram's name will be changed in this first paragraph. But here we go with verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. Now I'm going to stop there. That's the end of verse 5. Abram, that name means exalted father. Abraham means father of nations, father of multitudes. Picking up in verse 6, God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. That's the end of verse 
8. Now, this first part of this retelling of the covenant in chapter 17, because we do have other tellings of the covenant, other givings of the covenant, there's sort of a proto-covenant in chapter 12, when when God promises uh, if Abram follows him, he will make him a great nation. There's a covenant outlined in chapter 15, and now we have this covenant in chapter 17, and there's all kinds of scholarly discussion as to do chapter 15 and 17, are they part of the same covenant? Are they showing different sides of the same covenant? Is chapter 15 a, a private covenant, and now chapter 17 is a covenant that Abraham is, is affixing himself to publicly? We don't know. We can have all kinds of theories and interpretations. We can do all kinds of research and all kinds of reading. And every couple of years, the scholarly consensus will shift an inch this way or that. We are constantly having to ask ourselves, what does it matter? What does it mean? Does what it mean even matter? <laughs> we are constantly asking ourselves in this line of work if these Bronze Age and Iron Age texts have anything for us today. Well, one answer to that is no. Um, but another answer to that is since many, many people who call themselves people of faith continue to weaponize these texts. It might do progressive folks well to understand what these texts really are, where they quote-unquote really come from, or at the very least, what the best scholarly research is telling us about how they were compiled. History is interpretation. Now, in German, there are different words for history. Uh, one word meaning a telling of the facts. The other word meaning what we call historiography, uh, the making of history and the placement of some sort of purpose or some sort of uh, telos behind the actions of people. And sometimes that can be quite mystical and zeitgeisty, and some, sometimes it can be very, very basic. But when we talk about the history of these texts, we're talking about history on many different levels. And we don't know. We don't know when these texts were finally written down and finally sort of codified. Um, we have guesses. We have clues. We think it dates back to the Babylonian captivity, as I mentioned earlier in another episode. But we don't know how old these traditions were before they were written down and before Torah became of utmost importance in the practice of the faith of the people returning from exile in Babylon back to Judea in the 530s BCE. So we have this first part of the chapter 17 covenant, and another thing that um, commentators have looked at is, is this a non or unconditional promise of God? Is the covenant with Abram slash Abraham something that Abraham and his offspring can lose by their actions, by their failure to be faithful to the terms of the agreement? There are all kinds of answers to that question. We talked in chapter 15 about the fact that Abraham, though he prepared the elements of the covenant signing or the ratification of the so-called covenantal treaty between Yahweh and himself, uh, he, he prepared the animals for sacrifice. He shooed the birds of prey away. That it was only Yahweh who passed through those bisected pieces of, uh, of sacrificed animals. And that in most covenantal processes in the ancient Near East that this motif seems to mimic or call back to, both parties would have walked through these 
cut up pieces, the indication being that if I fail to live up to my side of this deal, may I be like these sacrificed animals. In fact, there's a term called cutting the covenant. In chapter 15, only Yahweh, even though Abraham does the physical cutting, only Yahweh cuts the covenant. Only Yahweh walks through the pieces, uh, the ceremonial and the cultic uh, activity. In chapter 17, we get this first section of covenant, which seems on its surface perhaps to be unconditional, and some scholars believe this is the work of the priestly source, the priestly editor or redactor, um, and trying to make sure that Israelites understand that God is with them always and that their covenant is unconditional. But then as we look at chapter 9, or verse 9 rather, in chapter 17, we do see conditions, and it's a pretty hefty condition, all things considered. Verse 9 begins like this. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you shall be circumcised when he is eight days old, including the slave born in your house and the one bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both the slave born in your house and the one bought with your money must be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, that last verse, which says anyone who's not circumcised shall be cut off from his people, I'm quite sure that's an even better play on words or pun in the original Hebrew than it is in English. But the point is made, right? If this activity is not undertaken, uh, you've broken my covenant and you will be cut off from your people. Well, there are a couple things going on in this text that I find interesting. Um, Why is it, why is it that Yahweh requires the marking in flesh of Abraham and his offspring's commitment to the covenant. I mean, it's the language is the language is barbaric when you look at verse 13. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. That's disgusting. That's gross. That's well, might we say it's violent? Might we say it's abusive? Well, I was thinking about that and I was doing some research and I I'm going to share uh, an article that, or part of an article, that makes the case that, yeah, this is an act of violence, and it makes its case based on the definition of violence that I think is particularly helpful. The article is called Circumcision as a Slave Mark. It's by Hector Avalos uh, from Iowa State University. It was published in Perspectives in Religious Studies, January 1st, 2015. He begins, Circumcision is a widespread ritual, especially in traditional Jewish and Islamic religious traditions. Although the rates of circumcision have been declining in the United States, it is still the second most frequent procedure performed on children under one year of age. 
The World Health Organization calculated in 2006 that some 665 million men were circumcised around the globe. Then he says this, if one considers circumcision to be a form of violence, then it would be one of the most widespread forms of violence on the global scale. Few wars or local conflicts could claim hundreds of millions of casualties. Then he says, but is circumcision a form of violence? A little bit further down, Avalos gives us his definition of violence, and he calls it, quote, the act of modifying and or inflicting pain upon the human body in order to express or impose power differentials. Okay, end quote. Um, that comes from his book, Fighting Words, The Origins of Religious Violence, which was published in 2005. So if we take violence to be the act of modifying and or inflicting pain upon the human body in order to express or impose power differentials, it would seem that the requirement for circumcision is in fact a requirement for violence. What greater power differential could there be than between Yahweh and humankind? And so the requirement that to uphold this covenant of blessing between humankind, or specifically in this case, between the Abraham and Abraham's descendants, then in order to uphold that, the flesh that you put in the game is quite literal. The human side of this equation is quite literally skin in the game, foreskin, as it were. The power differential is obvious, and the requirement by Yahweh of this practice or of this marker of obedience the scripture says a mark of covenant in the flesh kind of makes me scratch my head. Why would, uh, why would a transcendent God require this act of self-mutilation? Is that too strong of a way to put it? I don't know. And then, you know, there are these arguments, and Avalos talks about them, that in, in reality, the mark of circumcision was related to marks of slavery, and that uh, if a slave was willing to undergo circumcision um, and not run away or not try to escape or not try to overthrow his his master, then that was a pretty good indication that you had a slave for life. And Avalos talks about different scholarship that looks at the way in which perhaps the Hebrew nation understood itself, or at least certain parts of the Hebrew nation understood itself as slaves of Yahweh. Um, they had been slaves in Egypt. Now they are slaves to Yahweh. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation looks at the way in which Judea uh, had been a client state of Assyria, and this new covenant with Yahweh now makes uh, makes Judea or makes the Israelite nation a vassal of the one true sovereign Lord, Yahweh. So different ways of looking at that relationship in terms of its parallels um, and analogies in political structures. And that, of course, harkens back as well to the very act of the ratification, if you will, of the treaty in chapter 15, because we said before it could very well be that this cutting up of animal pieces and passing through them was something that was fairly common as a way of codifying or as a way of ratifying covenantal or even vassal relationships between peoples or between nations. 
So if violence is this act of modifying the human body through the infliction of pain in a way to express or impose power differentials, well, then it seems pretty clear that circumcision is an act of violence. And then we have to deal with the fallout of the idea that the text in its final form is basically has Yahweh commanding Abram to commit violence upon himself and upon his entire household, all the men in his household. Verse 23, Abraham is upholding okay, the, his side of the covenant here. And verse 23 says, Then Abraham took his son Ishmael and all the slaves born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and his son Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, slaves born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So a lot of repetition there, but basically, look, it's trying to say everything that God laid out as far as who needs to be circumcised, Abraham did it. Abraham did it. And not only do we have this issue of power differentials between Abraham and God, obviously, but there's a power differential, of course, between Abraham and Ishmael. Abraham is the father. Ishmael is the son. Ishmael is also not the son of Sarah. He's the son of Hagar. We, we, we recall that. So there's all kinds of power dynamics and, and, and inequalities built into that alone, but furthermore, Abraham then circumcises every male in the household. And we don't really have any indication that the males being circumcised were especially willing. So there's the power differential of Abraham over his hired men and over his slaves. I think that's problematic. I think it's problematic to locate the human side of fidelity in something that is fundamentally a power differential that imposes physical pain. And regarding which the people who's, who are experiencing the pain have no choice. Now, you can, if you take a view of scripture that says, well, scripture is inerrant and everything in it is for a reason and is for the greater good, I suppose you can gloss over all of this, but if you want to take scripture seriously and on its own terms, I think you have to wrestle with these things. I think wrestling with these things is the point. I think that's one of the reasons Jacob, who will be Abraham's grandson and inheritor of the blessing and of the covenant, why his name is changed to wrestles with God, which of course is what the word Israel means. That is perhaps too cute and precious a way to wrap this episode up. I don't for a second mean to say that I think God requires the doing of physical violence onto people in order to prove that we are loyal to God or that we love God. It's, well, remember... Remember your context, remember your time frames, remember that these are bronze and iron age stories that have been, as best as we can tell, recast uh, in the context of exile and of the formation of a people 
and an identity group in some ways in opposition to their surroundings and to their oppressors. So is it any wonder that if there's a priestly redactor writing in the 540s or editing in the 540s BCE, that that redactor or that school of thought might want to make clear demarcations around who's in and who's out. And then, of course, that leads us to the conversations that I have with my fundamentalist neighbor about who's in and who's out from a Christian perspective. And he always wants to reassure me that, oh, no, it's not my theology that decides, it's God. But, of course, my neighbor's theology in many ways is his God. And that's the problem. And that's one of the reasons I make episodes like this. Um, I hope that you are well. I hope that you benefited in some way, shape, or form from today's podcast. If you like what we're doing, please do subscribe. Um, Please share it if you'd like to. And please do join us again. Thanks for being with us, and have a great day. Bye. (laughs) 